Today on episode number 222 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Ian Wolf shares his reflections after listening to every single episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. There are not very many people who have listened to every single episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. However, today's guest has, it is Ian Wolf. He's an assistant professor of English, co-director of the Quality Enhancement Plan at Lewisburg College, which he'll share more about what Lewisburg College is about if you want to know more about that later in the episode. He is a member of the first cohort of Lewisburg's faculty learning community led by Dr. Todd Sakrysik, and he's fanatical about science fiction, British literature, and good teaching. Ian, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Hi, great to be here. It is fun to get to talk to you finally because we have been on a similar journey you and I, <laughs> you are one of the few, the rare people who has listened to every single episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. And why don't we start at the beginning and tell me a little bit, how did you first hear about the podcast? Well, I was part of this faculty learning community led by the great Todd Zakrizek, who's been on your show a couple of times. And one of my peers in that group had said, hey, you know, you're thinking about doing some gamification. And I heard this great episode about reacting to the past. I have no recollection now of what number that is. It's been a while. And I went back and I pulled it up. And uh, this is before I I had ever been on Twitter. I had no earthly clue how podcasts really worked. And I, I listened to it. And I thought this was really good. And so I just scrolled all the way down to the bottom and, and started started from scratch, started from a very first episode. So that episode that you're referring to would be episode 21. And that was with Mark Carnes. He is professor of history at Barnard College and really was one of the first founders of this whole idea of reacting to the past. And in case people haven't listened to all 200 and something episodes, that is a game that they play in history courses, where instead of reading about the history, people actually react and respond to history and take on more of a role playing, they take on some kind of a role in that time period. And there's not just one game. I mean, there's tons of different kinds of games now that have been written in this same format. Some people have taught it in my university and speak so highly of it. I kind of want to see it in person, even though I've heard a lot about it from the podcast. Yeah, me too. It sounds fascinating. I don't know if I've got the gumption to get it rolling just yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you heard about the podcast and do you remember when you listened the first time? Was it listening actually on a podcast app on your phone or were you listening over the web? I poked around and I found that Google's Play Music could play podcasts. Mm. 
and I said it and I, I listened to that first episode and I immediately subscribed to the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast and I set it to alert me whenever a new episode came up and I scrolled all the way down to the bottom and started with episode number one right after that. Oh, my gosh. Somebody told me that when they first started listening, they thought it was always just my husband and I. <laughs> they were like, because the first five episodes are just, a, that's what they tell you when you start a podcast to kind of have a few episodes queued up before you actually, mm-hmm. you know, go for this. So yeah, the first the first five or six are Dave and I talking and then it gets, you know, some different characters coming into the mix. So I know that there's so much, I mean, just just we both have in common these shared conversations and we both have in common that they've really shaped our teaching. And it's so hard to pick, you know, favorites or that kind of thing. So I'm going to ask the the impossible task, which is to reflect on some of the episodes that have really stood out to you, particularly if they've changed the way that you teach. And I know one of them was Linda Nelson talking about specifications grading, sometimes called specs grading. So could you talk a little bit about what specs grading is and kind of how you have taken that in and and started to integrate that into your teaching? Uh, Well, I I can't say that I've started integrating it to my teaching yet. The plan is to really put it into practice here in this fall, upcoming fall semester. But uh, I've started working on building some rubrics and, and whatnot there. What it is, is simply eliminating this, this concept of partial credit. And you either meet a high standard or you do not. As a student, you accomplish very particular expectations or beyond, or you go back to the drawing board and you try one more, you try it again. And I find that very powerful. You know, my first degree was in teaching high school. And one of the major components of that was teaching writing. Out here in North Carolina, we had the, at that time, the 10th grade writing test, the 10th grade North Carolina writing test, which was a bit of a kind of a drill and kill. Everybody, we, we spent days, weeks preparing for this test with students, training them on how to read the prompts and and how to construct the quintessential five paragraph paper uh and then they took the test and that was it and and i always found that very troubling as an educator because one and done is doesn't really give you an opportunity to get feedback reflect on your process apply some of that feedback and grow and so dr nilson's whole thing about yes you tell them you didn't do it you didn't do it the way i wanted it to be done so you don't get any credit for it, but you can try again. And now that I've given you this feedback, now you know where to put in some of those energies. I also really appreciated this idea. And this is something that I got from my dad, actually, who was uh, an investigator for social services for decades, was simply that everybody needs to know what your expectations are. And with specifications grading, you have to make your expectations abundantly clear because nobody can meet an imaginary expectation. So I, I, that's something that, that I found very important that I had always recognized as important, but Dr. Nilsson's structure gave me some very specific ways to put it into action, reflect upon what I have in place and, and move it into something that could change the way I teach. I also always lamented this idea of grading papers because it would take me hours upon hours upon hours. And, and her system is 
is strikes me as far more efficient with your time. When Kathy Davidson was on the show the second time to talk about her book, The New Education, she spoke of the history of grades coming from the meat industry and how many in the meat mm. industry would criticize that the way they graded the meats, it was not finite or precise enough for even meat. And then we're trying to take, you know, learning and our disciplines and trying to apply that same methodology that isn't even precise enough for, again, grading meat. And this really strikes me as something I've, I've been very impacted by Linda's episode as well, although I have not implemented specifications grading in my courses either. But it's interesting how you can take these ideas in. I think it's really helpful for us to wrestle with them, but we can't go and run, you know, every single idea that we hear about on these episodes mm -hmm. or read on people's blogs. But I like the way that they're helping us to just think more critically about our own teaching. I had someone recently ask me, you know, how do you do that? How do you take the ideas from the show? And, you know, I thought, well, I, most of them I don't. <laughs> how could you, right? Because I remember Linda warning me, and Robert Talbert is another person who uses specifications in his teaching. He's been on the show many times before. And it's one of those systems where if you're truly going to do it, I mean, I suppose you could do it for one assignment, but you wouldn't really actually be then doing it because it's one of those, it's actually the entire class is, you know, wrapped around this this way of thinking about our grading. The other thing that struck me as you were talking is this constant tension that's really healthy of hearing new ideas that then challenge our thinking about our teaching, our own teaching philosophy. And then, you know, where they don't map, do we need to change how we think about our teaching? In this case, do we need to change how we think about grading? And so much of grading is just like this game, you know, the game to get to the A and you don't want to work too hard because mm -hmm. you don't want to go past the A, you just, <laughs> but you want to just, you know, just meet it well enough or, or whatever. When I say game, by the way, it's a game that we designed. I'm not making fun of students. I'm making fun of us, right? So because we create this sort of transactional way. And my understanding is one of the things that specifications grading does is reduce some of that sense of the game. And like you said, it's so much more than about feedback, opportunities to, and Ken Bain talked about this too when he was on the show, talks about in his books, opportunities to fail, try again, mm -hmm. get the feedback, and that continuous loop that can be growing our skills and our knowledge. And I know this also tied for you in with a recent episode from SIO NUA about the vehicle of learning is labor. That really struck you a lot too. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. One of the, one of the primary responsibilities that I have at Lewisburg College is teaching the foundational writing class, writing an inquiry. I mean, we're a small institution, so I teach a lot of different things, but uh, things that, that come across in that course carry over to everything else that I teach, and that is writing is really, really hard. And to do it well requires an insane amount of energy and effort when you look at it across the spectrum, of the, across the time frame of the entire semester. I mean, the kind of time that you would devote to writing alone, it just boggles the mind in some cases. And there's no easy way to be good at it other than to simply do it. And this is something that I hadn't phrased it so effectively, but I was sort of uh, scraping at the bottom of the same hill, this idea that 
you just, you've got to work hard. There's no simple workaround. And the only promise that I can give you is that I am here to help and I will help. But as students, you've got to do the work. I can't provide feedback unless you take some risks and try some new things and maybe fail a little bit, which is one of the reasons why Dr. Nilsson's idea of, of resubmission is very powerful because it kind of lowers the stakes of failure a little bit. This fall, I'll be teaching for the third time a class. It's an elective class in our management courses, and it is personal leadership and productivity. And one of the things I have them do is from David Allen's book called Getting Things Done, and it is the weekly review. Mm-hmm. I've talked about the weekly review on this show before. In fact, I'll put a link to that episode if anyone wants to learn a little bit more about the weekly review. But I've never met a student who's ever done a weekly review before. They may have done some version of it. Maybe they look at their calendar as it's coming up, but not the kind of practice as he describes it. And for most of them, the last time I taught it, the first couple times they did it, they didn't like it. They didn't see value in it. They kind of felt like it was a little bit of a waste of time because mm-hmm. they were unaccustomed to doing that kind of reflection. And also it was just a series of steps. They had just designed it and they're trying it out. And it was really fun and rewarding to see week three, week four, week five, how their reflections on the experience began to change because they started to see the fruits of their labor and they started to see the value of doing that. And I mean, I don't teach writing, but I would imagine with writing that there would be some similar parallels where at first my focusing on the labor aspects of my grading, you know, it might feel rote or forced or, you know, ah, I don't want to do this, but starting to see more of the benefits as we go deeper in that learning, I imagine that there are some similarities there. Absolutely. Absolutely. We always argue that writing is a recursive process. It loops back upon itself and and you're only done when the deadline comes. It's never going to be perfect. You can only get it as good as you can before somebody says, all right, give it. We're recording this episode very early because we've got the new start of a school year, (laughs) I think for both of us coming up Mm -hmm. here. And so it was nice to just get to put some episodes in the queue. Normally, I don't make any time based comments in the episode. But in this particular case, I'm going to break that rule because this morning, the episode with Peter Felton aired and Peter Felton spoke about both the research and then his associated practices having to do with engaging our students. And I know that even though this one just aired this morning, it really, really struck you as connected with your work in your teaching and then also more broadly at Lewisburg College. So could you speak a little bit about how you're thinking about engaging students in your own teaching, but also more broadly at your institution? Yeah. So Lewisburg College is a very small, private, two-year residential institution. So uh, there aren't a lot of us out there. And we have at most, at any given point, 40 full-time faculty. We usually are, you know, 600, 700 students. And so engagement is really important for us because the campus climate, the campus culture is one that demands focus. It demands interest and engagement from faculty as well as students. Uh, Because anybody who's sort of 
not as engaged is noticeable. You don't have those students who can sort of sit in the back of a, a very large lecture hall and watch movies on their laptop. We, they, don't, they can't hide in our average class size of about 14. And so that is really hard. Engagement is very hard for a lot of faculty who have never been trained in pedagogy, or, or in this case, andragogy, which is another distinction that I got from this podcast. This idea that how we interact with our students, how we put learning as the focus, as opposed to the teaching as the focus, how we treat our students, all these things factor into how much we enjoy our jobs as educators and how much our students are able to glean from our courses. And so when we went through our quality enhancement plan back when our accreditation was coming through, we decided that engaged teaching and engaged learning were linked. So there's a logo for Lewisburg College's QEP, which is Lemniscate, the, the infinity symbol, and they feed into each other. And so Professor Felton's discussion about how uh, some of the structures for how to engage students, some of the things that, that need to be in place if you even hope to create some sort of reproducible engagement was very helpful, especially with, with my position at Lewisburg College being kind of a co-director of the QEP and working to get faculty to adopt some of these strategies and really guide them in that process. His, his episode is one that I'm definitely going to be sharing with my peers to just let them see that, you know, you're not alone. It's a really hard thing. And here's some ways that, that we can help each other. One of the things that's harder to talk about is those areas where we've been able to find some successes or been able to incorporate. Is there anything that comes to mind for you where you, through listening to all these different people from such different disciplines and different kinds of institutions where you're really still wrestling and you, you feel like it might represent for you an area of opportunity for you in your teaching where you're going, ah, I got to do this better. I got to mm-hmm. keep exploring this and keep wrestling with this area. You had a statement very early on, Bonnie, about just being nice. <laughs> you know, you go through all of those personal inventories, whether it be Myers-Briggs or True Colors or what have you, and my usual results are ones of a little bit more analytical, more distant. And, and so it has taken me some time to sort of come to this realization that shock of all shocks, my wife was right maybe 10 years ago when she said one of the single most important things faculty can do is build relationships with their students. And at the time, brand spanking new teacher, I said, no, it's all about how you express the information, how you get them to engage with the works. And no, she was right. Being nice is really important. It's not something that I I came to naturally, but that is something that I will say I started, I was able to sort of a general philosophy that I was really concentrating on developing this past semester that I think ramified, it sort of echoed through my classes in a capacity that even when students failed my courses, they didn't give me dirty looks in the hall anymore 
which again, being so small, it's kind of hard to hide from professors you didn't do well in and vice versa. It's hard to hide from students that didn't do well in your courses. And so maintaining a positive relationship with these students was really important to me. And and I was kind of struggling with, with how you go about that. And I think just this idea of acknowledging that uh, their lives are incredibly complicated, more so than mine was when I was a student, more so than I can imagine they are. And so just giving the benefit of the doubt when things kind of go sideways and and it's it's hard it's very hard for me if if assignment doesn't get turned in on time well you missed the deadline and that's very unfortunate but having some systems in place that allow for allow for something like that is definitely something i think i can be better at and something that i am making great pains to improve on if i would have tried to predict that that would be a theme early on. I never could have done it. I remember Jesse Stommel was on one of the episodes, I think before episode 20. I don't remember exactly which one, but I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. But it was about teaching with Twitter. And Mm. if I were to go back and measure, I think at least 20, 25, 30% of that episode is about kindness. And then it also got echoed with an episode with Kevin Gannon, another person who came on to talk about respecting our students and, of course, respect and kindness very closely tied with one another. And I was just going back probably two or three weeks ago and looking at an old syllabus and reading the language, and I thought, I sound like a jerk. I totally sound like a jerk. (laughs) Like who wants to take a class? And it's, I mean, we do need to be, as you said Mm -hmm. earlier, Ian, we need to be clear about our expectations, but we don't need to do it in such a punitive, negative way. Our syllabus could be an invitation. It could be about possibility. It could be about curiosity. And too many times in my instance, as I look back, I've allowed myself to be influenced. You may got to lay down all the rules and we've got to, you know, make sure that if, if something comes up in the middle of the semester that we have the legal document to back us up for why, you know, X or X or Mm -hmm. Y happened. And I think like, I don't want to be a super legalistic person. I do want to be a person whose expectations are clear and transparent and relevant, meaningful, but I don't want to be a jerk and I don't want to be legalistic. And for me, I think, you know, as long as I've been writing syllabi, I, I really think that I still have some work to do there to create more of that invitation and sense of curiosity. Ideally, it might be one of the first things that students read. And even if they don't necessarily read the syllabus first in, in our learning management system, you know, the, the actual document of the syllabus can become less important. I can put a little intro video up there. I like to do those class it's like a movie trailer, but instead of class trailer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I posted a little mm-hmm. bit about some that I built on just using a little simple Apple templates that were inside of the one that comes with a Mac, the the movie editing software. And there's the equivalent for that on Windows. Though, you know, just inviting them to an experience to be engaged, to have their experience that they're bringing their learning into the classroom really matter in their context. That's that's really fun to hear you reflect a little bit on that. Is there any other episodes or any other learnings that you want to mention before we go on to the recommendation segment? I had forgotten until you started talking about teaching with Twitter and Kevin Gannon's 
piece. Both of those men I now follow on Twitter as well. And Professor Gannon's concept of punching up, I really liked. Don't blame the students when things go wrong. If there's something wrong with the system, work to change the system and encourage students to do the same. And then, you know, this this idea of you can be in support of the students and you can be nice to the students while also being very angry when things don't go right. Um, and I don't know if Jesse Sommel would appreciate me referring to anger as uh, an emotion there, but his, his his responses to when some of these articles that have come out, and so I'm following him on Twitter as well now, and some of his statements when, when people come out and, and blame millennials for when things go wrong. He's, he's angry about it, but he's angry about it in support of the students and sort of keeping them in the forefront is definitely something that has carried through for me as a theme through listening to the entire collection. And yes, absolutely. Long story short, I think that's an excellent thing that carries forward as well. Yeah, it, your use of anger there, it feels like righteous mm-hmm. anger, you know, not self-righteous, but actually righteous anger that mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. well-placed when we don't serve our students as well as we could. And also, your your statement about the syllabus, it's funny that you mentioned that because I am finishing up, I'm in the last chapter of the Excellent Teacher series, Designing a Motivational Syllabus by Christine Harrington and Melissa Thomas. I don't know if you've you've seen those, but I think in the introduction, she talks about a great deal of what you just said about the syllabus can very often come across as this legal document that's not very supportive of the students, not very motivational. It comes across like a contract, and it's really more about making your expectations clear. So I, I find that very apropos, and I'm almost done with that book right now. I'm so glad that you mentioned it because I have not heard of it. And I think I'm going to have to be putting that on my Amazon wish list when we're done with this conversation. <laughs> oh, it sounds like one that would really be useful to me because that is what I would want to do. I want it to be motivational. Yeah. Well, this is the point in the show where we each get to give our recommendations. And my recommendation today has to do with music. And it's an artist who I was not familiar with. And then all of a sudden, from various things from a late night show, which I always forget the name of that I was watching, and then also Dave Pell. Dave Pell is a news curator, and he has a daily email called Oh gosh, the oh next draft I believe I'll put I'll put a link in the show notes so people can find it. But anyway, he also mentioned this artist. It's Brandy Carlisle, and again, may, maybe many of you have heard of her, but she was new to me. And what I love about the video that I'll link to in the show notes is that it's not just her, but that she's actually taking on a mentoring role because she found this young man who's such a gifted musician in his own right and has him come and perform with her on the song called The Joke. And I'll just play a little bit of it as a little bit of a teaser and then encourage everyone to go click the link that I'll have in the recommendations part of this show.
so who we, we were hearing there in that clip was actually not Brandy Carlisle. That was Benicio Bryant. And she invited him to perform with her on Late Night with Seth Meyers. And oh my gosh, what a beautiful duet. Because it's actually a song that t- tells two different stories of two different people. And oh, it's just just absolutely gorgeous lyrics. So meaningful. And he's such a brilliant singer, and so is she. So I recommend people go listen to The Joke, Brandy Carlisle with Benicio Bryant, and they're performing in this particular clip on Late Night with Seth Meyers. And I also wanted to mention that on another episode, number 167 with Maria Erb and Ben Kahn, they both talked about a service called Genius or a website called Genius. And in that particular context, it was one of their professors who teaches religion talking about the connection between lyrics from Kendrick Lamar, and I believe it was some of the Psalms, and helping their students to draw from music that's very familiar to them to scripture that may or may not be as familiar to them and just bringing in those connections. And so in this case... I did find the lyrics so powerful to the song, The Joke, that I just played a small clip of, and it was so fun to be able to go on Genius to read a little bit more about the story behind the song, and I just love that I can do that, and I love that thanks to Maria and Ben, I actually know what Genius is now, (laughs) and if I have songs I want to learn a little bit more about, that that's one of the possible ways I could find them, so that was really fun, and thanks to both of them for introducing me to that site. And Ian, I'm going to pass it over to you now for your recommendations. I actually have three because I'm a glutton, but <laughs> I would like to begin with my own music recommendation. And this was this was a bit of soul searching for me because you on several episodes ago, I believe it was Frictionless Systems. You took a Twitter recommendation that I had provided for the band Delta Ray. So I good. still adore them. They got a new album coming out relatively soon. I'm really excited about it. But in the meantime, before that album comes out, I have been listening to The Fast Romantics. And they have the single Julia, which is just a total earworm. You will be humming it for days. It's sort of Elvis Costello-y. It's, I, I love it. The whole album is great. The second song on the album is called This Is Why We Fight. And my son, who's three, loves it. He, as soon as we're in the car, he starts shouting, play the Why We Fight song. Play the Why We Fight song. So if you if you need something just catchy, then uh, definitely check Fast Romantics. The second one is uh, born out of a little bit of bitterness, and that is to recommend Brunau University. I don't know. I know next to nothing about them except that their academic leadership is amazing. They have Jim Eck and Emily Zank, who recently used to work for Lewisburg College and were some of the best people for me to work for and with. And I am incredibly bitter that they are no longer with us, but I wish them all the best. And I know they're going to be awesome wherever they go. But if you have the opportunity to work there and with them, you're in for a treat. Oh, I Uh have people like that, too, you've worked with and you're like, it'll never be the same. It's so sad when they go. No, it really won't. But okay. The third one is sort of a general philosophy of life, and that is to get a librarian in your life. My wife is a librarian. You don't actually have to marry the librarian that you want. I did. It works for me, but it has made my life so wonderful to simply say, hey, I wonder what 
this thing is. And because she's a librarian, she cannot help but find the answer. But on top of that, she's a brilliant educator. And it has been my experience that most librarians can find you anything that you are after, least of all good teaching strategies, especially the academic ones. They know how to support students because they've been supporting students for years. And so having the librarian in your life, having somebody who is adept at finding information, analyzing and interpreting information, and, and helping you determine what's best for your students, it's just, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Having a partner in that creative process is, is, is absolutely wonderful. I'm also a partner. I do a lot of stuff with the librarians at Lewisburg College. I, I'm faculty, co-faculty sponsor for the game club with the librarian there, Miss Mikos. So, mm. I mean, we, we have a lot of fun there. Um, so, yeah, just any librarian will do. Librarians are amazing. And recently on Twitter, I, I don't know if this originated on Twitter, but there was someone who said that we should just get rid of all libraries and then just replace them with Amazon. And oh, did the, oh. I forget the expression, <laughs> the bristles went up on Twitter and all of librarians plus people who love librarians, which is, you know, most of us just came out fighting for librarians. Of Are you kidding me? And I think the consensus mm-hmm. was, yeah, you, you shouldn't have made that suggestion. And librarians are amazing. And so are libraries. Well, and, and the misconception that all a librarian does is check books in and out yes. is incredibly frustrating. I mean, that's like saying t- all teachers do or put checks or minuses on papers. It's a very small piece of the work that they do. And I think I I recently saw something along the lines of the rate at which information is growing. I don't remember the the number, but it's just this astronomical growth where it used to take something like 10 years for information to double. And now it's it's doubling in like seconds. Mm -hmm. And with all of that stuff out there, why wouldn't you want somebody who's really good at finding what you need out of all of the meretricious crap that's out there. Absolutely. Well, Ian Wolf, it has been so fun having you on the show. And I'm so honored that you would have taken all that time to go through every single episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm so glad to be in community with you, not just because of the music recommendations, although that is a bonus, (laughs) but also I really believe the work that we are doing is in solidarity with each other. And I'm just glad to be in this good work with you of just constantly wrestling to become better at what we do. It has been my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks once again to Ian Wolf for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. If you'd like to look at the show notes for this episode, you can go to teachinginhighered.com slash 222. And if you want to not have to remember every time to go look up at the show notes and get the links to the music we recommended, the genius website with the lyrics information, the music that (laughs) Ian recommended, all of the importance of getting a librarian in your life, you can subscribe to the weekly email. And that'll mean that you'll get an email just one time a week in your inbox with the show notes and also an article accompanying it about either teaching or productivity. Thanks so much for listening. We've got some great guests coming up and I'll look forward to seeing you next time.